This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Hello everyone, welcome to episode 3 of the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular. I remembered the entire name of my podcast, so I feel pretty good about that. I am Glenn Butler of many places around this place to be nation. And I have with me, of course, my brother, the other part of Place to be Nation's Brothers of Discussion, Mr. Scott Butler. How you doing tonight? Listen all y'all, it's the Glenn Butler Podcast. <laughs> It is indeed. And with the weekend's blockbuster sci-fi release, the Star Trek Beyond trailer, we thought we had to come on and do a reaction show. Yes, this is the Star Trek trailer reaction show. Exactly. You'll find that no place else other than right here at the Place to Be Nation. Uh, this, this is what we provide for our listeners, definitely. It's a service. Yes, we're obviously going to be talking about the Star Trek trailer that just came out. We're going to talk about what was in the trailer, and we're going to sort of speculate from there about what's going to be in the movie. So if you're really super paranoid about spoilers and don't even want to know what's in the promotional material six months before the movie comes out, you might want to skip this section and skip ahead to the part where we talk about the Star Wars The Force Awakens score. Otherwise, let's talk about this Star Trek trailer. I think you'll share this impression, but when I found out that they were attaching the Star Trek 13 trailer to the Star Wars movie release, I was much happier that I had gotten a ticket for opening night. I believe I said this in these exact words. I was more excited for the Star Trek trailer than I was for the Star Wars movie. Because the last three Star Wars movies sucked, and the last two Star Trek movies have been awesome. So I was much more excited for the Star Trek trailer than I was for the Star Wars movie. That's not a totally unique opinion, but a little idiosyncratic. Because the last two Star Trek movies have come in for a good amount of criticism. I'm not saying they're beyond criticism, I'm saying they're awesome. That would appear to be, in at least a lot of the circles I run in, a uh, minority view. I don't have time for people that can't enjoy things. It's like WWE fans that shit on John Cena. I don't have time for people that can't enjoy things. Have fun. Love yourself. Uh, well, as I like to say, there is a better way to live, but I tend to criticize those movies a little more than you do, although the 11th movie is kind of special to me for personal reasons, but Darkness ooh, really missed the mark. Love yourself. I try. I try. Darkness is incredible. Uh, Darkness, I think, really missed the mark in a way that Beyond seems to be doing better. And that is in the story. I think, at least from the trailer, it looks like we're not first getting a remake of any old episodes or movies. It looks like they're actually doing a new story this time. This is the five-year mission. This is a couple of years into the five-year mission. They're out in new places, meeting new characters. I think that's really a good step forward. What did you think of 
the story, at least, as much as we can see in a 90-second trailer. Yeah, you know, making wild, exaggerated guesses based on three frames of a trailer. You know what? I'm not even going to judge it yet. I can't. From what little we know of the story, I could sort of make a wild, exaggerated guess as to what the story of the film will be, but there's no way to judge it until you see it executed. Oh, but this is fandom. This is what we're supposed to do. There's no way... I'm not going to judge the movie. I saw the trailer. I'll judge the trailer. I'm not going to judge the movie yet. Okay, well, what did you think of the trailer as a trailer? Did it fo- did it meet your expectations? Did it get you more excited for the movie? It did not. I don't want to say it was underwhelming. It did not get me more excited for the movie than I already was. Star Trek 2009 movie and Into Darkness are what got me excited for this movie. This trailer didn't do anything to get me any more excited. It just sort of served as a signal that, hey, the movie is actually almost done and will be released on time. Beyond that, I didn't really get much out of it. That in itself is pretty remarkable, considering the, uh... Considering the last movie took four years. The last movie took four years, this one is taking three years, and they spent a considerable part of the pre-production period writing a script that got thrown out with a director who got fired. Yeah, each of the last two movies had a consistent production team, director, writers, and they each got delayed for a year before release. Whereas this one had a total turnover of everyone about six months or a year into production. And it's still coming out in less time. So that's a rather remarkable achievement. I still have some hope for it, though. I I have... You're saying that like I don't. No, I'm not... I know you're not a hater. But the Hater Brigade is strong. Already? Based on this trailer? Yes, because it has action scenes, and it has explosions, and and jumps, and stunts. It's a trailer! That's what you put in a trailer! Yeah, well, I mean... It's not Terms of Endearment! Star Trek Terms of Endearment would be a pretty compelling premise for a movie, though. I think there's room for all sorts of stories. I think... This is one of the major contentions of the Hater Brigade, and one that I can't totally reject, is that making Star Trek a blockbuster action movie kind of misses the point. Star Trek has always been a blockbuster action movie. Well, ever since Star Trek 2, I guess. Look at the trailers for Star Trek 1, it was still marketed as a blockbuster action movie. I haven't seen a lot of the trailers for Star Trek 1. I'm not sure it was marketed as a blockbuster action movie. It might have been marketed more as, Hey, you liked Star Wars. We have a movie in space. And what was Star Wars? Yes, I... So what were they trying to tell you Star Trek 1 was? Yeah, I know, I know, I know. But I think the distinction between the J.J. movies and the previous movies, especially the next-gen movies, which they just tried to make all of those big action movies, and they never really succeeded because their action hero was Patrick Stewart. I think you're doing a little bit of good old these revisionism here, because what was Star Trek 6? It was a big space battle movie. And what was Star Trek 5? Star Trek V didn't have that huge a space battle. It had the shuttle chase, I guess. Yeah, but And it what, had the part where they fired on God, I guess. What were the scenes in the trailer? It was the firefight on the planet of Paradise. Yeah. It, 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 was, it was the spaceship fight with the Klingons. It was firing the torpedoes at God. Yeah, but... Those are the scenes that go into trailers. Because yes. trailers are there to excite you. And there's a solid case. I can't really reject this argument either that Star Trek's home is more on television. 
well, that's you... where they get to do variety of, of stories. That that's where they get to do the stuff that's more about ideas. Even though yes. a lot of the movies are about ideas, some Most of those of you have to read into a little more than others. That's like the way that I can justify Into Darkness, for example, which despite all the aping of the Khan stuff and the racism inherent in casting a white British dude as Khan... Um, well, darkness it, it's, it's, is about the security state. And, yeah, yeah. And about found family. Yeah, darkness can be very easily read as a movie about the rule of law and the importance of not performing extrajudicial executions. And about the evil admiral of the week, which is about as old a Star Trek trope as there is. Yeah, I mean, you're not going to get, like, Balance of Terror in a two-hour theatrical release. You're not going to get The Inner Light in a two-hour theatrical release. Yeah, I often say you're not going to get The Drumhead the movie. No, you're not going to get the drumhead in a two-hour theatrical release. If you want stories like that, you need a television series. Yeah. Or a Netflix series, or whatever the fuck venues that things that used to would have been television series are showing up on now. CBS All Access. It, it's, like, it's, like we, it's like we still call a collection of songs on iTunes an album. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's one thing that I think you can read into Star Trek Thirteen from the trailer. There's all the stuff about the frontier pushing back, which I hope will be a story about colonialism, about some of the more uncomfortable aspects of the exploration angle on Star Trek. I don't see it really going in that direction. I see it more of, again, sort of a typical Star Trek story. They did this on Enterprise a few times. They did this a bit in the beginning of Next Gen with Q. The way I see it, again, judging, trying to judge a two-hour movie based on a 90-second trailer, it's one of those classic Star Trek stories about the Enterprise is exploring the universe, and at some point the universe strikes back, and the Federation gets its nose bloodied because it's sticking its nose into things it doesn't understand, and it gets a little overconfident. Yeah, that, that was Q's first appearance. It's an encounter at Farpoint basically saying you've gone too far, you're a savage race yeah. and whatever. It's and dangerous out here. And yeah. just because just you've explored all of these star systems and you've explored all of these nebulae and you've explored all of these phenomenon and you haven't gotten your nose bloodied yet, that doesn't mean there's not stuff out here that's going to bloody your nose and you're about to run into it. And it's going to be an exciting action blockbuster movie about it. Right. Well, there are two perspectives that you can take on that. There's the one where you haven't gotten your nose bloodied yet and you're going to because there are evil things out there that's you know like when Q uh, introduced them to the Borg saying you know you, you think you're okay because you've encountered the Klingons and the Romulans and everyone and you're still all right but wait till you meet these guys these guys are implacably evil and more powerful and and all of that and then there's the view that you've explored out here and that exploration has taken the face of going places where you are not native you are not used to the way things are done places that aren't made by your people and aren't for you and kind of insinuating yourself into them again the kind of anti-colonialist aspect that I might be reading too much. We'll see when the movie actually comes out. I'm not saying that would be a bad story. I'm saying I would be very surprised if that's the story they're telling in their two-hour action blockbuster. Well, there are interviews and such that uh, Justin Lin, the new director that they got for this one, has done talking about a clash of philosophies and the sort of conflicts about ideas that you can expect in the movie. That's part of a whole 
Some people have called it damage control, which I don't really agree with because I don't know that there's a lot of damage. But again, that's the Hater Brigade. Um, they call it damage control for everyone seeing the trailer and saying, oh, it's another Kicksplode action movie. And, and there are interviews with Justin Lin and with Simon Pegg, who co-wrote the movie, about how they put that in the trailer because it's the trailer. And they're showing it before Star Wars, and they're showing it before action movies, and and all of this. Um, but the last but Star the, Trek movie that wasn't a kickexplode action movie was Star Trek Five. The one people hate even more than Star Trek One. I don't really think of Six as a kickexplode action movie. It had action scenes. It had a space battle, but there was a lot more about the fall of the Soviet Union. Basically, I mean of... that was. And that, I mean that movie was very directly about something. There was a lot of political intrigue, but there were also battle scenes. Into Darkness had a lot of political intrigue, and it also had battle scenes. Into Darkness didn't have a lot of political intrigue. Really? There were a couple of scenes with Admiral Robocop. Yeah, the whole NSA extrajudicial execution storyline with Admiral Robocop. Yeah, and that was addressed in, like, a couple of scenes. It wasn't something that was heavily emphasized by the movie. It's something I like to read into because I like redemptive readings and I like to find something that's interesting about the movie. Uh, while ignoring a lot of the things that I think are incredibly problematic about that movie. But I'm not sure that emphasizing it to the extent that I do, just to get by in my mind, is really what was intended. Go ahead, take the main point of the storyline of the film and call it something you read into it to make you feel better. Okay. <laughs> but anyway... The quote from Justin Lin that, that I was talking about, this is an article from birthmoviesdeath.com, which I had never seen before, so I don't know if I can endorse the site. But th in this article, they quote him saying, What would happen if you go on a five-year journey, and you're trying to not only explore, but also maybe introduce other people to your way of thinking? What would that mean? What are the consequences of that? You're spreading a philosophy that you think is great. Are there going to be any philosophies that counter you? That was something I thought about since I was a kid, and we got to explore that. So, I think that that's a good sign. I think that that's saying that in and among the action plot, there are ideas going on here, and I'm at least, I'm at least glad to hear that. And there are, you know, some people in the Hater Brigade who are mollified by that kind of thing. The closest Hollywood usually comes to anti-colonialism is white savior stories like Avatar. So I wouldn't get my hopes up for that kind of thing. <sighs> I'm kind of starting to get my hopes up, though. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't. Maybe you're right. We'll see. So we've talked a lot about Into Darkness and a fair bit about Star Trek VI and Star Trek V. And a lot about extraneous interviews people have given. Do you have any reaction to the actual trailer, the actual 90 seconds of video we're supposed to? this is supposed to be a reaction show to? Well, I mean, the main thing that I've talked about is that that might not be entirely emblematic of everything that's in the movie. Which seems kind of obvious once you actually say it. One thing I noticed is that all of the guest stars are buried in makeup. All of the guest stars are in full head, full face, covered makeup. If there are any recognizable people in this film, I don't know how you would recognize them. True, true. Uh, there are a couple of shots of one alien who looks a little bit like a Narn, and I'm not sure if that is Idris Elba's character. Idris Elba's in this movie? Uh, yeah, Idris Elba was... Uh, I'm surprised you didn't see it. Uh, he is the villain of the piece. 
which did get some people excited when when he was cast. Well, if he's in the trailer, he's the uh, Narn with extra flares on his head. I imagine that that is him, because you'd think they'd have to have him in the trailer, because he is one of the starring actors of the movie. Well, if he's the main villain, he's probably the one saying about, you know, this is where the final frontier pushes back, Captain. Yeah, yeah, all of that stuff. How about, also... It might be one of one of the things that the villain of the piece does. Apparently, the Enterprise is getting blown up again. Yeah, that was one of my reactions. That for a trailer that starts out with "We have no ship," they have an awful lot of the ship in the trailer, which sort of lends credence to your idea that maybe the movie is about other stuff, and all of the shots in the trailer are just the actiony bits of when the ship gets destroyed. Because if he says we got no ship, and a significant portion of the movie involves no ship but a lot of the scenes in the trailer involved the ship, then most of the scenes in the trailer were from the action-y bits where they lose the ship, and not from the long, talky bits where there's meaning and storyline. Well, I do hope there are lots of long, talky bits. There were a lot of shots in the trailer also down on the planet. Um, yes, that looked interesting to me. Presumably after the ship blows up. You see, that's something that does look very interesting. Or the whole Enterprise crew is in like a prison camp or something. A lot of the Enterprise crew, I, I think a lot of them are separated. So you get pairings that you might not have had in the other movies. You get Bones and Spock together when they haven't had a whole lot of scenes together in the last two movies. You get Kirk on his own for a while, apparently. Uh, you get Sulu and Uhura together. I don't think they've interacted very much. So, there's a potential, at least, for some interesting pairings. And it seems like maybe the Enterprise might get blown up fairly early in the movie. If, again, we're just trying to see from a few shots, but it seems like a goodly part of it is, like, a survival epic. I, I don't know if the Enterprise gets blown up or just gets, like, stolen or disabled or something. There's a shot of the saucer section, like, crumbling. There's a shot of Kirk leaving on an escape pod that appears to be launching directly off the bridge, and then another shot of him watching the saucer section fall into the atmosphere. So I'm not sure when in the movie that happens, but it looks like there's a lot of story after that. Well, because there's that scene right at the end of the trailer where Kirk is beaming up with the black and white painted woman, and they have to beam up to somewhere. Right, well, in the first shots in the trailer, when, um... A lot of the crew is together, they're not on the Enterprise. Also, people have zoomed into some of the shots in that first scene and on their jackets. I think Spock has an emblem for the USS Franklin or something. Really? Yeah. That I, would be interesting. Yeah, I think that's another ship that they get use of somehow. But I'm glad we have the internet to pick up on details like this. Exact. Well, thank you, Bill Curtis, for the internet. This is one thing you have recording the reaction show several days after the trailer came out because I've been reading this stuff all week. Well, the trailer came out on, like last Tuesday or so, didn't it? It was on YouTube. W well, in advance of the of the showing Thursday night, yeah, which yeah. I didn't entirely expect. I wanted to wait until after we saw it on the big screen to see if the trailer felt different seeing it on the big screen, and it really didn't. Uh, yeah, yeah, it, it, I didn't feel much of anything different about it either. So, speaking of Spock's jacket, everybody has new beautiful jackets. <laughs> everybody has new uniforms. Yes. We can probably do this pretty quickly. I don't know if there's a lot of story development to delve into here, but, you know, These we're... These movies have so many freaking uniforms. 
uniforms. It's just, it, it jumps out of it. Oh, yeah. There, there are almost as many uniform variations among these now three movies, the three latest movies, than there were in the previous ten. Pretty close, yeah. Again, we can probably run through this pretty quickly. There's not a lot to delve into. What do you think of the new uniforms? Eh, they're new uniforms. I mean, they're not really different. They they do look kind of flat compared to the old ones, because the old ones have that, like, detailing. The texture, yeah. Which is kind of silly when you really examine it, but it does look more interesting on screen compared to just the flat uniforms. And the shoulders kind of stick out a lot. They do. And the really high neck really stands out. The, the, like, the collars are deep this time. Uh, and it, it kind of makes a couple of the actors look weird. And, and of course, there are the away team, maybe, outfits, which are totally new. That That's much newer than any of the other uniform variations they've, they've had in these movies. Oh, with those, like, striped shoulder jackets? Yeah, the, the blue jackets, the outfits, really, because they had uh, matching pants with knee pads and, and all these things that are much more of a departure from the older Star Trek uniforms than any of the uniform variations they had in the last two movies. Also, of course, something that people have had deeply held reactions to in the trailer is the music. Oh, I love the way they used I love that they used the song to call back to the first movie. I thought that was great use of music for the trailer. I think the use of the Beastie Boys in these movies is something that can be read into more than might be intended. I mean, the Beastie Boys is classical music in the 23rd century, right? This is it's several hundred years old. This is music that's several hundred years old. Musical sensibilities have evolved in whatever ways that music does in 300 years let alone extraterrestrial influences and, and all of that once First Contact's made. and Whatever happens to the pop culture of Earth, which is never something that Star Trek has really engaged with. Yeah, the closest to pop culture Star Trek usually comes is Shakespeare. Exactly. The, the pop culture that people consume are Shakespeare and Berlioz. Uh, actually, we mentioned the other day that the popular music that people have played in Star Trek movies consists of the makeover mambo that Picard dances to when he gets all young and he gets chest hair in Insurrection, and the Berlioz piece that he plays in First Contact. Yeah. And Data uh, sings Blue Skies in Nemeshet. That That's about the extent to which the Star Trek films have engaged with music. And so for Kirk in all three of these movies now... Uh, well, we don't know that he, that song is actually in the movie. It's just in the trailer to, like, remind you of the first movie. It's in the trailer to, to remind you of, of the scene where he's playing it in the first movie and a little bit the scene where he's playing the Beastie Boys in the second movie um, on an album <laughs> in, in his apartment or whatever. That's, that's something that has different angles on it. The Beastie Boys and that sort of rock rap, whatever the hell the Beastie Boys are, has a certain image that it conjures for us. But that can't be the image that it conjures in the, 20, in the 23rd century. In the 23rd century, listening to the Beastie Boys is the sort of thing that might mark Kirk out as, like, a dork or something for listening as popular entertainment to music that was made 300 years ago. Like if I went around in my car listening to Mozart concertos, which I might, because I'm a big old dweeb, but Kirk, as he's been presented in these new movies, really isn't a dweeb. 
He's much closer to the image that the use of that song conjures in a contemporary audience, to any impression that would be given in world. I kind of like the way it twists those scenes on its side, when you realize that that music is almost 300 years old. Like he's, you know, steals the car and is tearing across the desert and he's playing Mozart. You know, he's in his apartment and he's in bed with these two women and he's got Mozart on the stereo system. That's something you would do to say, hey, look at me, I'm classy. Don't you both of you want to jump in bed with me? Playing 300-year-old classic music. Oh, God. That's something that goes counter to all of the other characterization of Kirk in these movies. I mean, Kirk in the last two movies, now three movies, is more of like a frat boy dude bro. In some ways, Kirk is shown as a bit more reckless, maybe? But he's never shown as stupid. No, he's not, he's not... He's never shown as, like, unintelligent or even uneducated. So why wouldn't he maybe have a taste for 300-year-old music? I'm not saying it's out of character. I'm just saying it's a... It's... It's not totally out of character. It, it feels to me a little discordant. It's discordant with the way the Hater Brigade has characterized the characterization of Kirk in the new movies. So you're saying that latching onto the Beastie Boys is more of a redemptive reading? <laughs> I'm all for redemptive readings. I'm all for a strong misreading, as we've seen in a couple of our podcasts. Um, but I tend to be a little more on the side of the Hater Brigade as far as Kirk's characterization. And I, and I know you aren't. <laughs> well, I think Kirk's characterization is different than in the original series. And the ways that it's different are interesting, because this is an alternate universe. This is what you do in an AU. You change one thing and look at the effects it has. Well, something was changed. One thing was changed in the past. How does that change Kirk's character? How does that change his personality? He didn't have his father as he grew up. He was a child of a single mother and later had a stepfather. How does that change? His stepfather is obviously going to raise him differently than his birth father did. He's going to relate to a stepfather differently than he related to his birth father. His birth father was a Starfleet officer. Who knows what the hell his stepfather was? That changes his upbringing. It changes his development as a young child. It changes how he grows into an adult. It changes the personality he develops as he matures. It changes the decisions he makes later in life because he has a different upbringing and different personality. That's the whole point of an AU, is to explore the consequences of this change. It is. I don't think the ways they've explored that in the last two movies have been particularly interesting. I think they've taken that premise and used it to tell a very paint-by-numbers hero's journey movie. What you do then is you take this character that's been changed by the circumstances of your AU and you place them back into circumstances that are identical or very similar to the original universe. So you've got this Kirk that grew up with the stepfather and is different, has different characterization, different personality, different decision-making skills, different upbringing to shape his worldview, and now place him back into a situation that's very similar to something that Captain Kirk would have faced in the original series. How does this new Kirk deal with it? And then you start to see glimpses. You start to see signs that... Okay, this is a very different Kirk from the original, but you put him in a crisis situation and you see glimpses of the Kirk that was there in the original. You see personality traits that maybe were changed by his upbringing, but they're still there. And the crisis situation draws them out. 
and despite how he's so different now, you see the signs that deep down he is still fundamentally the same person as original Kirk. And those signs are brought out in these crisis situations. And you go, there he is! That's my Kirk! That's what you look for in AUs! That's the whole point of AUs! Okay, but what are those moments, do you think, in these movies? I think when he tries to surrender the ship to Admiral Robocop to save his crew, I think that is very similar to when he surrenders the ship to preserve his crew and the peace in Star Trek VI. That's a very similar moment, and it comes from the same inner character spot of, if I take all of this on myself, I can protect everyone else, that's my duty as captain. And even this guy that had a rougher upbringing, didn't have a Starfleet officer father to guide him, grew up presenting his stepfather, was kind of a wild child, was an irresponsible frat boy, he still has that sense of responsibility. He still reacts that way, let me take it all on myself and try to get everyone off easily. He still has that instinct to sacrifice himself for the greater good. Well, that could be interesting, then, in the light of that, to see how he reacts, uh, apparently, evacuating the Enterprise on his own in Star Trek Thirteen. I don't know if they'll draw these parallels as explicitly as they did between Darkness and Star Trek Two. But there should be some parallels between Star Trek 3 and this movie, assuming what we think may happen in this movie is accurate. Now, we don't know how the ship gets destroyed. Does the ship just get attacked and destroyed, or is, it, or is there a sacrifice involved? Well, th there are shots uh, in, in the trailer of this swarm of ships attacking and just slamming into the ship and penetrating and going straight through. There's a shot in the trailer of them blowing off one of the nacelles, yeah, and I think see, they, they sever the neck of the ship at one point. See, that's very different. If you just get attacked and defeated, that's very different from sacrificing the ship to save the crew. If everything that we've seen from here seems accurate and Kirk is evacuating the ship alone, it makes sense that he would be alone because he would be the very last person there. You know who else evacuated the ship alone and was the last person left on the ship? Captain Kirk? Yes. In, in, um, which, which one was that? The Paradise Syndrome? No, that was Star Trek 2009. Well, Captain uh, Kirk. Yeah, okay. You're the captain now, Kirk. Yeah, I, I, okay. I was also thinking of Kirk alone on the Enterprise in, in the Paradise Syndrome, but yes, in Star Trek 11, there, there was, of course, uh, Captain Thor Kirk. Yes. Yeah, your father was the captain of a starship for 12 minutes, and he saved 800 lives, whatever it was. That's it, yeah. You mean I remembered a line from a movie? Got it right. How often does that happen? I dare you to do better. <laughs> so if indeed the Enterprise gets destroyed or severely beaten up, that'll be the second movie in a row, which might be laying it on a little thick. Well, if it gets beaten up as bad as it looks in this trailer, that'll mean basically it's being destroyed two or three years after it was damaged so badly it was in repair for a year. That's a lot of beating for, for a ship to take. Um, also, I hope that they don't do the same character journey for Kirk, because that, that was something that irked me a little bit about Darkness, was they basically did the same journey where he has to earn the Enterprise again. 
where in 11 it was very straightforwardly the Joseph Campbell Star Wars hero's journey stuff, where, you know, the wise old man tells him to go off to adventure, there's the refusal of the call, and, th and then eventually he earns the Enterprise at, at the end of the movie. And then in Darkness, they have him as captain of the Enterprise for the first five minutes, and then... And then the wise old man says, Nah, you know, not so much. Yeah, and, and then bust him back down, and he has to earn the Enterprise all over again. And then at the end, there's this celebratory moment that's basically the same as the celebratory moment at the end of Eleven. Where, okay, now we have the Enterprise, and we're all one happy crew family, and we're voyaging on the Enterprise. I hope that the journey in this movie is different. And it looks like it might be, and it very well could be, and that would be great. It also, to return to the superficial, it looks like Chris Pine's haircut is a little closer to Shatner this time, which is kind of cool. Um, Can I just say how much I love Chris Pine as Kirk? I mean, I realize recasting all of these roles, really you could say it about almost all of them, recasting all of these roles is really an impossible task. I mean, the reason they didn't make this movie in 1994 is because recasting all these roles is an impossible task. But God, did they nail it with most of them, almost all of them. They and were... Kirk, Chris Pine as Kirk is so good. And he's not doing a William Shatner impression. He's not trying to be William Shatner, but he is Kirk. Yeah, that's, that's what kind of separates him from... I mean, Zach Quinto does a great job as Spock, and he has enough of a physical resemblance to Leonard Nimoy. I mean, seeing them side by side in Eleven, you know, you could even kind of see it. Yeah. Um, and, and he does a good job as an actor with it. And Carl Urban is just spot-on, note-perfect. As McCoy. Yeah, but Chris Pine is play, basically playing the role the exact same way that Leonard Nimoy did. Or very similar to the way Leonard Nimoy did. And Carl Urban is almost doing a DeForest Kelly impression. Yeah, just about. But Chris Pine isn't doing any of that, but somehow he is still Kirk. And I, I think it's great. See, that's I've only, I've only really seen him as Kirk in a few moments. And a few of the moments where he got a little Shatnery. And not in the inflection and the acting style like a lot of people think of when you say Shatnery. Although, you know, if they got some good melodramatic Shakespearean stuff out of him, I think that might be interesting. But there are some little details. Like the last scene of Eleven, when Spock is joining them on the bridge and he has his uh, legs crossed and just kind of turns to him. He seemed kind of Shatnery in that moment. Yeah, it was a very Shatner-like gesture the delivery of the line that's a good choice at the beginning of the beyond trailer felt a little bit shatnery felt a little like him coming into the role a little bit i haven't really seen him as kirk as much as you have but i mean i'm open to the idea oh i i think he's great i, th I think most of them are great but i think chris pine as kirk is really good I think Chris Pine, most of the roles are really good, but I think Chris Pine as Kirk is really good in a different way than Zach Quinto and Carl Urban are really good. True, true. I mentioned before that I was very happy that this appears to be a new story. I had really assumed that this next movie would probably be the Klingons, because my general theory had been that when they started these new movies, and I refuse to call them reboots because it's not what they are, but that's one of my bugaboos. If it was a reboot, it wouldn't have had Leonard Nimoy as Spock. Meh, it's still starting over in an alternate timeline. It's an alternate timeline! They linked it back to the old timeline, but they're still starting over in an alternate timeline. It's an alternate timeline. The Mirror Universe episodes weren't fucking reboots. Well, no, because that's... 
A, because they weren't new series, and B, because they were still mostly from the point of view of the original universe. And they did the uh, Enterprise Mirror Universe episodes. That didn't have anyone from the Prime Universe. But anyway... Those two episodes. But anyway... If they did... If they did... 200 episodes, it would have been a reboot. I think to be a reboot, there has to be a complete wiping of continuity. And so... and well, there, there really has been. No, there wasn't. Leonard Nimoy was Spock. There's no wiping of anything. Leonard Nimoy is not from this universe, though. In this, in this universe, none of the history we know happened. Yes, but he's the link. But he's a link to a different universe. Yeah, oh, anyway, that's just one of my bugaboos. Semantics. You always up for semantics, right? But I kind I kind of assumed that when they went to do these new movies, they figured, what are the things that the public knows about Star Trek? One, Kirk and Spock. There's Star Trek Eleven. Two, Khan. There's Darkness. The number three thing that people know about Star Trek is Klingons. And especially after Darkness with all of the... Uh, Klingons? Klingons, <laughs> with 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 all of the stuff. By the way, I kind of loved the reinterpretation of the Klingons in Darkness. I, I like the Klingons with uh, ridge rings. I think Klingons would really be into body modification. Yeah, that is a really nice, especially since I think those were like punk teenage dirtbag Klingons anyway. <laughs> uh, so that that version of the Klingons I I really liked, and I assumed after all the stuff in Darkness about Admiral Robocop and his warmongering that the next movie, if not the Klingon War, which might be a disappointing tack to take on. It would be some sort of intrigue with the Klingons. But I am kind of glad to see that it's not, and that it's it seems to be new alien races, and new places, and a new story, so... Well, maybe we would have gotten that if they'd kept the same production team. Then it would might have followed the same pattern. But half the production team left, and the other half got fired. Got Yeah, I got fired. Plus, there was, you know, there was a lot of Klingon intrigue in the last movie. So if you're just going to do Klingon Intrigue again... I guess the next movie following on from there would either be some war epic or some desperate attempt by the Enterprise crew to avoid the war. I don't think you can do Errand of Mercy as a two-hour action blockbuster either. Yeah, I guess a movie about avoiding a war that still has to have tons of action scenes... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> might, ...might work at cross-purposes. The movie about avoiding a war with tons of action scenes is either Star Trek VI or Nemeshit. We have to win this battle to prevent a war. Okay. That takes some maneuvering to create. So, at at any rate, that's kind of where I assumed they were going. The number four thing the public knows about Star Trek is, what, the fucking Borg? And they better not do the Borg. I'd just as soon not see the Borg again. Not, not again, no. I'm just thinking of things the general public knows about Star Trek. Is there anything else you want to cover about Beyond? I didn't think it was possible, but I think Star Trek Beyond is an even dumber title than Star Trek Into Darkness. It is a bad title. I got used to Into Darkness. I don't mind it anymore, even if even it's, if I still don't think it's a really great title. I it, just sort of got used to it, and now it's just there, and I don't care. Yeah, it's a freaking stupid title. And I'll probably, I may get there with Beyond as well, but on first blush, it looks stupid. I mean, if they are going for that exploration angle, I guess there's, like, beyond what you know, beyond what you've seen, but it's a dumb title. I, I, to- I totally agree there. Uh, what else do we have on this movie? Having not seen it yet, I'm yeah. kind of tapped. Okay, well. Uh, thanks very much, people, for staying with us this far. 
We are going to take a break. Here are some quick ads about everything you can find on the uh, Place to Be podcast network and on the PWO PTBN podcast network. Two podcast networks, two great tastes that taste great together. Uh, We are going to hear about that, and we will be back after the break. See you soon. consideration paid for by the following what's up everybody this is kevin kelly make sure you check out every episode of the kevin kelly show right here on the place to be nation place to be nation.com the kevin kelly show every episode is a winner at least we hope place to be nation's justin rosero here in addition to the kevin kelly show we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on itunes at place to be nation.com you can check out scott criscolo and me on the mothership the place to be podcast home of great interviews and our famous vintage vault pay-per-view reviews if you need your fix of current wrestling talk we have plenty of options for you including main event which features a roundtable discussion led by ptbn analysts and special guests and our monthly pay-per-view reaction shows including immediate feedback and discussion for wwe nxt ring of honor and new japan super shows also be sure to read Live Wrestling's past with Graham Cawthon's excellent exclusive History of Wrestling podcast, Phil Schneider's Digging in the Crates, and our monthly pay-per-view rewind roundtable series led by Ben Morse. And join Pro Wrestling Only's Will and I on the Dangerous Alliance podcast as we dive into various subjects in the form of exercises and games. Sports fans have plenty to enjoy as well. We featured the Sports Evolution Mega Show with Scott, Dr. G, Cowboy, and Cowboy Sr., the Kings of Sport, led by Live Audio Wrestling's godfather, Nate Milton, as well as the NBA Team Podcast, which takes a year-round deep dive into pro hoops, and the TJ McClune Show, featuring great guests from around the world of sports journalism. PTBN also proudly features the Richard and the Mailman Podcast, specializing in the world of TV, thought, leadership, anger, and irreverence. As mentioned, all these shows available on PlaceToBeNation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. PTBN also is the home to tremendous in-depth features on pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus tournaments, and more. We also want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wing Bar in West Warwick, Rhode Island, and Fall River, Massachusetts, Scott Keats, RSPWFAQ.com blog, and Piledriver.net. Do you watch pro wrestling? Do you love pro wrestling? We do too. And there's only one podcast feed that you can't miss. PWO, PTBN, Podcast Network. That's the pro wrestling only place to be nation podcast network. We have a host of brilliant shows dedicated to wrestling past and present. Whether it's the territories, Japan, Lucha, old school or new school, we've got something for you. Get a dose of history on Exile on Bad Street with Chris Zellner. Listen to reviews of current pay-per-views on the PTBN reaction shows. Not just WWE, but New Japan, Ring of Honor, and NXT. And get your weekly update on everything else that's going on in the indies, Lucha, and beyond on This Week in Wrestling. Relive WCW Supercards on Where the Big Boys Play with Parv and Chad. Join Dylan Hales and Dave Musgrave on one of the very best shows for super hardcore nerds wrestling culture. Go deep into WWF history and discover the Bob Backlund and Bruno Sammartino eras on Titans of Wrestling. Don't miss 
The Pro Wrestling Super Show with Stephen Graham and Tim Livingston. You can get the full archive of Goodwill Wrestling with good old Will from Texas. There's tag teams back again with Kelly and Marty Sleeves. Then there's the only pro wrestling game show, Brain Buster, with me, Johnny Sorrow, and a panel of great guests every time. Get them all on one feed. P-W-O-P-T-B-N. Podcast Network. You know you want to hear it. Welcome to part two of episode three of the Glenn Butler Podcast, Our Spectacular, hosted here at PleasedToBeNation.com, which you just heard a bit about. If you want to see more of my stuff on PleasedToBeNation.com, I do the Wednesday Walk Around the Web, a weekly link roundup of things I find interesting or entertaining or significant in some way. I also do a plethora of other podcasts here. I am a regular feature of the Super Extreme Vault, looking back at uh, ECW pay-per-views. I was recently on the first episode of Mission Indie Possible, which should be dropping soon. Look for that. I was on the first episode of Rank and File, ranking wrestlers, because a lot of the other podcasts we have are about wrestling. Uh, and and a, a bevy of other things on this website. Uh, Scott, what have you been on recently on this website? I voted in that tournament? Yes, that, that would be Place to be Nation's Holiday Tournament Spectacular, uh, now entering its final days. Uh, as we drop this episode, the final four is up, but there's a solid chance that by the time you listen to this, and if you're listening, bless you, uh, there's a solid chance that by the time you listen to this, the finals will be up. Because we are barreling through this thing to uh, get everything done by Christmas Day. Because nobody wants to still talk about the holidays once Christmas has passed. It's over and done and we're on to New Year's. So yes, thank you thank you very much, Scott, for voting. Um, I'm sorry so many things you voted for have lost. So, so many. I believe we'll be covering that in the next episode of your podcast. Is uh, that, am I incorrect on that? Uh, we might. I'm not sure, because time is short. But if we don't, we're crabby about some things and we like other things. That's basically how it goes, right? So, uh, continue voting, look for that. And, of course, the other things you have to plug are the other episodes of the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular. Episode 1, a deep dive into the Hunger Games series. Episode 2, a rundown of uh, the two of us and the salubrious Steve Willie from Place to Be Nation of every ding-dang thing in the holiday tournament. Even if we're a few rounds on here, many rounds on by now, I think it's still a fun listen. We're just talking about a bunch of things, talking about some of our holiday memories, holiday experiences. I think that's a good listen, as long as the season is going on. But now, what we're going to do is pivot into a discussion of a CD that we've been listening to this week. 
not on CD, but I mean, as, as we mentioned, these things are a little anachronistic. The score album to the new Star Wars film, The Force Awakens, by the one and only John Williams. Now, in this discussion, we've both seen the movie, so that's probably going to come up. There are probably going to be spoilers, so just be aware of that. Anyway, uh, Scott, what did you think when they announced that John Williams was coming back for this movie? Did you expect that? Did you not? What were your thoughts? I didn't necessarily expect it. I mean, it's not like I was shocked by it. I wasn't not expecting it. But because it was so divorced from George Lucas now, I wasn't sure if he would. And I wasn't necessarily thrilled that he was coming back. On the one hand, it's nice that he's coming back so that they all have a proper Williams score. So that there's that continuity between the scores of all seven movies. On the other hand, I wasn't a huge fan of his work on the prequel movies. So, just because it's Williams back scoring a Star Wars movie again did not necessarily mean to me that the score was going to wind up being as good as the first three. True. I haven't been the greatest fan of Williams' work in the 21st century, and I think you've been even less of a fan of it, really. Well, I'm a big fan of themes. I like big, bold themes that are played clearly and completely from beginning to end and then over again and then over again i like star wars main title i like superman main title i like big bold themes and star wars is full of themes the main title luke's theme ben's theme the force theme the imperial march leia's theme the Han and Leia theme, the Luke and Leia theme, the Rebel fanfare, Jabba's theme, the Emperor's theme, all kinds of themes in those original three movies. I think that's the highest anyone has ever ranked the Luke and Leia theme in a list of Star Wars themes. Just talking about them off the dome. That, that one's kind of ran under the radar. It's not used a lot, but I'm just listing all the ones yeah, yeah. off the top of my head. There's just a million themes, and I love themes because you pick it out and... They're repeated over again, and they're like played a little differently. They're played faster, they're played slower, they're played in a minor key, they're played in a mournful way. It's all the same set of notes, but it expresses so many different things using that same set of notes. I love that. I love that so much more than just amorphous, this bit of music sounds good, and then that bit of music sounds good, but it's all not really connected to each other. It's just either good music or bad music, but it's not connected to each other in any way. It doesn't have a deeper meaning. It doesn't symbolize anything. It's just, oh, that sounds nice. I'm not as big a fan of that. I like big, bold themes. Right, and, and the three Star Wars trilogy scores from Williams really define this golden period in his career when he was just rattling off classics yes. like all the time. He did the three Star Wars movies. He did Superman. He did E.T. He did Raiders of the Lost Ark. So many classic scores, classic themes that people remember, that people love. And eventually, his style changed. Yes. Partially, the style of movie that he was doing changed a little bit. Partially, it's just his development as an artist, you know? Anyone working in music for that long is going to go through different phases in his career, and he's just... He's not the same composer in 1980 that he is in 2005. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that really shone through in the prequel scores. It felt like in The Phantom Menace, he was kind of trying to do that. He was trying to imbue, like, one-off tracks with really big melodies, sort of in the way that he had done in the trilogy, but more in the style that he had reached by 1999, which was an odd combination uh, he, he wrote a lot of themes in the prequel trilogy. Maybe not as many as he wrote for the, the original trilogy, but there's Anakin's theme from Phantom Menace. There's uh, the Anakin and Padme love theme from Attack of the Clones. There's a uh, the droid march. There's a Trade Federation theme. Is the Trade Federation theme different from the droid march? No, those are the same thing. Never mind then. There there are are several themes, but the themes are so different. They're more low-key. They're sort of underplayed. And they're also not featured as prominently as the themes in the original trilogy are featured. The themes in the original trilogy are big, bold. They're played by the brass section. They're in your face. They're loud. They're repeated. The themes in the prequel trilogy are, are sort of more understated. It's played quietly in the background by the string section, and it's only repeated once or twice, and it's not repeated in whole. It's like the first half of the theme is repeated, or the second half of the theme is repeated, or the first two-thirds of the theme is repeated, but not all of it together and not repeated, because that would just be repetitive, and why would you want to repeat a theme? But just play it more understated and downplay it and overlay it with other things, and they just don't stand out like the themes in the original trilogy stand out. Williams' style by the time the prequels came around, and more so once you got into the 21st century proper, I mean, there is a bit of a separation between Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones in the way that there isn't between Clones and Sith, in terms of the style of the music. It's a little more subtle. But Williams' style by that point was... I don't want to say his entire style was more subtle, because there are always subtleties in his work. There are fantastic subtleties in... You know, his music from that period in the late 70s, early 80s that everyone loves. Yeah, definitely. But the use of themes, the development of melodies was a little more deliberate. The steps were laid out a little more. They are a little more in the background, except when they're not. But those moments are kind of farther between, like you say. And also, there was a significant shift in the way that he scored action music. Basically, his action cues from the prequel trilogy sound basically just like his action cues from everything else that he's written in the last 15 years. You can easily match up cues from Clones or Revenge of the Sith with Minority Report, with the Harry Potter movies, especially the third Harry Potter movie, the last one he did. See, I loved the score to the third Harry Potter movie, but I don't like most of other Williams' recent work. I really like that score, too. The ironic thing with that, though, is that the third Harry Potter score kind of dumped a lot of the themes he'd written for the first two. I mean, those first two Harry Potter scores are full to the brim of themes, a little bit like the Star Wars trilogy, but in a more modern style, and not all of the themes were really to my liking. I mean, you could tell you could tell that they were scores for Chris Columbus movies. He was the one who made the first two, right? Yes. Right. Uh, whereas the third one dropped a lot of those themes, 
Like, there was the theme for the broom that was only there once when he got the new one at the end of the movie. But otherwise, there were just a couple themes that were retained, and there were a couple of really awesome new themes that he wrote for that third Harry Potter movie. A couple of themes which really made more of an impression than a lot of the music from the prequels, really. But that sort of action style, I think, especially the Quidditch scene from Harry Potter 3, is very similar to the stuff like Minority Report, like the Star Wars prequels. You can see that style developing if you look at Williams' work throughout the 90s. The last big burst of the sort of creativity that people really liked from him in the 80s was probably Jurassic Park. And then after that, there's more of a development into the sort of style that you see by the time of the prequels. It's there in Nixon. A little bit of it is there in Hook. There's a sort of style for dialogue underscore, not necessarily big thematic moments or statements of themes or action cues or whatever. But under dialogue, there's a sort of what I like to call woodwind wandering, where it, it sounds perfectly nice and all, but the melody of it doesn't make any impression. And that's something that he does a little bit in Hook and a lot in The Phantom Menace. Especially considering The Phantom Menace has a lot of dreary dialogue scenes. <laughs> But one of the things that I wanted to see when he was announced for the new movie, The Force Awakens, was how much of that style he would bring with him. Because, of course, it's just his style of composing now. He is m obviously going to be much closer as an artist to the man who wrote Revenge of the Sith 10 years ago than the man he was when he wrote Return of the Jedi 32 years ago. That's why I almost didn't mind when they floated the rumors that if Williams wasn't coming back for the movie, maybe Michael Giacchino would be chosen to score it because he had worked with J.J. Abrams on a lot of movies. Yeah, yeah. Because Michael Giacchino does a lot of scores sort of in that style in that he uses a lot of themes and features them prominently. Yeah, for sure. That was definitely a rumor that was going around because of his relationship with Abrams and honestly because John Williams is really old. Uh, that... Well, that was the reason why there was a rumor of anyone other than Williams. Exactly. Um, that's, that's played into it, and that's played into speculation now about what's going to go on with episode 8. They've already announced he's not doing the spin-off movies. No. Uh, he, he did The Force Awakens. He is not doing uh, Rogue One next year. Well, he already didn't do the other spin-off movies. You know, he didn't do, like, Caravan of Courage. Oh, no, he... no, he didn't do uh, Caravan of Courage, Battle for Endor. Was that the other one? Might have been. Uh, no, that was, um, I believe that was Peter Bernstein. Uh, I, I... Were you get him for Rogue One? Uh, no! <laughs> uh, he didn't do the Clone Wars either, that was, that was Kevin Kiner. Oh, good, good lord, I think it might be the main title track from the Clone Wars animated movie that they made. Almost goes into, like, a disco version of Luke's theme. I remember some people on the film score boards, and, place to be nation, if you think the wrestling boards are bad, try reading a film score message board. Smarks ruin everything. There are smarks in every fandom ever. I, I deal with some of them in... They get everywhere. They get everywhere. I, I, I deal with some of them in Doctor Who now. It's it's ridiculous. But I, I remember some people being aghast at that one. I, I, t I tend to find that stuff more funny than anything because, I mean, I'm not going to treat it like it's sacrilege. Yeah, I'm kind of... I've evolved past that stage of fandom where I treat new productions that I'm not a fan of as sacrilege against the ones I am a fan of. 
Yeah, and the big transition point for that was the Star Wars prequels, wasn't it? Well, the big transition point for that was Star Trek Voyager. Although the Star Wars prequels kind of came right after that and sort of finished it off. Well, I mean, it was the one-two punch in both franchises, right? There were the Star Wars prequels, and there was Voyager, and there was Nemeshit. Well, Nemeshit came later, but it was really Star Trek Voyager and the, and the Star Wars prequels that really taught me the lesson that I can be a fan of a franchise and not love all parts of it. Right. And I can not love a part of a franchise that I do love without having to take time out of my life to deliberately shit all over the parts that I don't like. Because I don't need to take time to do that. I can just focus my time on enjoying the ones that I do like. Do uh, You don't need to take time to proselytize your hate? No. It's, it's, it's much better to spend my time on things that I do like rather than spend my time focusing on the things that I don't. Well, like I say, there is a better way to live. Love yourself. <laughs> Let yourself be happy. You deserve to be happy. Watch things you enjoy. So, sometimes I, I like to quote a spam email I received on my work account shortly after I got hired that instructed me to do something that I think we should all do in our life a little more. It said, fill your life with the colors of gladness. You know, I paid a Nigerian prince $7,000 for that bit, little bit of wisdom. Can you paint with all the colors of gladness? Ugh, all the colors of the rainbow, brohame. Anyway, Star Wars. <laughs> I've heard of it. Yes. So, there were a lot of rumors that Jaquino was going to take over, um, and then those were pretty roundly squashed. Uh, well, they were squashed when it was announced that Williams was doing it. There was still speculation in some quarters. There were people picking over every interview bit and announcement. Someone said, Williams is going to do it. Well, does that mean Williams is composing a complete score? Does that mean Williams is composing themes and someone else is going to write the actual underscore? Does that mean Williams has an advisory role? Does that mean Giacchino is going to be there in case Williams, like... Drops dead in the middle of the orchestra pit? Yeah, basically. There are people speculating about all sorts of things. Uh, but... Even despite some health issues that Williams did have during the scoring of the movie that caused him, I believe that's what caused him to not conduct the score. Uh, there were a couple of people, I believe William Ross was one of them. Uh, Ross was the one who conducted the Harry Potter 2 score when Williams was busy with a bunch of other movies that year. William Ross, and, and there was another one whose name, I forget, conducted the main title and the end title and some other pieces. But that was one concession that Williams did make to his health. But he did compose the whole ding-dang thing. And now, of course, the speculation machine is whirring around on whether he's going to be back for Episode 8. And whether he can possibly be back for Episode 9, which is slated to record at the time that he'll be 87 years old. Although, you'd think that composing music is one of those things that really isn't limited by age. Oh, Betty White hosted SNL at 88 and a half. Ennio Morricone is still scoring movies on the regular, and he's, I believe, in his 90s by now? You can do this for a long, long time. So, all that said, we're 20 minutes into our segment about Star Wars. Do you want to talk about what we think about the actual music? Hey, Glenn, what do you think of the actual music? I thought it was pretty good. I'm not sure that I agree with you. Really? Although I'd probably go so far as pretty good. 
I've been listening to this since last Wednesday because Amazon accidentally leaked it Tuesday night to pre-orders. And so, of course, there were people who not only downloaded it off Amazon MP3 when they saw it was released early, but copied it to places and burned it to CD so that when Amazon saw their mistake and tried to delete it, you can't do that. It's in the world now. So I listened to the whole album a few times before seeing the movie and nothing really sank in. Yeah, that's kind of the impression I still have, frankly. Well, I found that after seeing the movie and, and listening to the album in full a few more times since then, that it really is an engaging listen. It's got that energy that it needs, and it has a couple of melodies, at least, that I find rather compelling. I like the score well enough. I don't think it's bad in any way. It's maybe a little too far on the prequels end of the spectrum in terms of its use of themes than the original trilogy end of the spectrum. But that's not necessarily a criticism, that's just my taste. But every theme that's in this, I cannot remember the theme as soon as I stop listening to it. It's like the silence from Doctor Who. If I'm listening to it, I sort of... Oh, okay, that's that theme. I hear it now. As soon as the track ends, I have no memory of what the theme sounds like. Nothing sticks. A couple of things are, have, have started to stick for me. The big new theme is uh, Ray's theme for the new hero of these movies, apparently. I think her theme is really engaging. I think it's propulsive. It is all over this album. I like Ray's theme while I'm listening to it, but at the moment, the music's not on, so I can't remember it. I've gotten to the point where I, where I can't remember it with the help of some of the lead-in melodies. I mean, there are a couple of rhythmic devices that Williams uses as sort of a prelude to the theme itself. And so that all flows organically enough that if I think of one of those intros, then I, I, can, I can go into the theme on my own. Maybe I'm not conveying this, this very well. It's, it's hard sometimes to talk about music. I think the quote is, uh, writing about music is like dancing about architecture. Es especially since I'm really no musicologist. All I know about orchestral music is what I've learned following film scores for the last 20 years, possibly? A little less than 20 years. And the reason I got into this in the first place was one-third Titanic. That was a huge score that everyone had. One-third Star Trek and one-third Star Wars. And a lot of the music terms I know from reading the liner notes to the 97 special edition Star Wars albums. And so I guess this is kind of full circle. So there's a lot of nostalgia wrapped up in this. And that's a huge element of the movie too. I think the movie was really well paced in terms of bringing in those nostalgia hits. I mean, there are shots that I really think are timed out to allow applause when someone shows up for the first time in a scene. I'd kind of like to see how those play like in a couple of weeks when it's not new to people anymore, but the first shot of Han Solo and Chewie has a moment for everyone to appreciate Oh my god, it's Han and Chewie. The first shot of the Millennium Falcon. The first shot of Leia. Of course, the first shot of Luke. Uh, such as it is. But that is absolutely an element of the music, too. There's a sense that whenever one of the old themes is brought back, it's kind of presented to you in such a way that lets you acknowledge, like, hey, that's an old theme. I remember that from Star Wars. What did you think of the use of the old themes in this score? 
Well, my main complaint is basically the same complaint I had about the prequels, although to a somewhat lesser extent, is that whenever they use an old theme, it's in the sort of the newer style where it's not featured as prominently in the soundscape, it's kind of understated. And also they don't use, they usually don't use the whole theme. They use like a part of the phrase. They use like the first half of the theme, so you recognize, oh, that's the theme, but they don't take the time to play the entire thing. Yeah, that's that's true. That's I think that's partially the transition in Williams' style and partially a transition in filmmaking style. Scenes just aren't usually as long as they used to be. And there isn't really that sense of allowing big moments for the music to breathe. I mean, there isn't going to be a binary sunset scene in a new movie. And so the presentations of the Force theme especially get shortened because the Force theme is a very long melody. Even compared to other Star Wars themes, it is a long-lined melody, so it's hard to really make a place for the whole thing. And I think in this movie it only really happens once. It's only really at the end. I think you get snippets of it a couple of other times, but that's, oh, you that's the longest bit you get you, is right at the end. You definitely get snippets of it. You get enough to remind you of it. With the Force theme and with Luke's theme, they are very, very identifiable by the first five or six notes. And so oftentimes, when they're being integrated into various cues which already have things going on, that might be all you get at a time. See, I, I, when I listen to that, I perceive that as a tease. You know, it's like if somebody puts a box of cookies on the table, you know, open up the box and there's half a cookie left. Is this your cookie theory of, of thematic use? Yes. I expected there to be 36 cookies in that box and there's half a cookie. And so you get a couple of bites and it reminds you of the flavor of chocolate and then that's it? First, I had, I had a great expectation, and the expectation wasn't met. Such a letdown, and, and I'm just left this little bit to, to like scrounge up and try to save her, but it's just not even enough to save her, and I'm so let down from my expectation. I expected a feast, and I just have these tiny little scraps of themes. I can definitely see the frustration there. I am less frustrated with it. Well, you have broader tastes than I do. <laughs> I suppose. Um, I, I guess there's You appreciate more... a wider variety of score styles. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> I didn't realize I was a compliment. Really? You appreciate a narrower variety of things than I do? I mean, yeah. you know, that, that's... I mean, I'm not ascribing a judgment to that. That's just a difference in taste, but... Exactly. You know, like, you eat a wider variety of foods than I do. You uh, watch a wider variety of television shows than I do. It would be harder not to, frankly. Uh, but maybe that's another show. <laughs> um, I also wanted to mention about Luke's theme, which was hardly used in the prequel trilogy because obviously Luke wasn't there. There actually was some discussion in 1999 uh, with Williams and George Lucas as to whether Williams should write a new main title because Luke isn't in these movies. And they decided, probably for the best, to go with Luke's theme because... It's Star Wars. Yeah. They already changed up the uh, end title structure. To a certain extent, that is the best part of the movies. Because it's so much about nostalgia at this point. These are movies I was watching in 1983. You mm -hmm. know? I said that when we were walking out of Force Awakens. I said, well, that's the first time since 1983 I went to go see a good Star Wars movie. That's a long time. 
So to a certain extent, the best part of the movies is the nostalgia hit when you're sitting in a theater and Luke's theme hits and Star Wars comes on the screen. That is one of the best parts of the movie for those of us that have been watching these films for 30-odd years. Sure. But then there was the sense that it would come back a little bit for the new score, because obviously they got Mark Hamill back, Luke's gonna be around. But then I listened to the CD without, without having seen the movie yet, and Luke's theme pops up several times. There's one track, Sherzo for X-Wings, that's basically built around variations on Luke's theme. Yeah, they do use Luke's theme a lot as sort of a theme for the X-Wing fighters. They use it for the X-Wing fighters. I think they use it as like a general, this is a Star Wars moment thing. This, this is something that, that I thought after seeing the movie, obviously, and seeing how very little Luke was in it. I mean, that was an easy day of shooting for Mark Hamill, wasn't it? <laughs> Uh, why did they even have him, have him at the read-through for the script? <laughs> but, um, when Han and Chewie step onto the Falcon, neither of them has a theme, so there's Luke's theme. To just kind of announce, this is an important moment, this is a Star Wars moment. The Sherzo for X-Wings plays during the trench run at the end of the movie. That totally, totally isn't just the Death Star again as a sort of general Star Wars theme. Like, this is the sort of thing that happens in a Star Wars movie, and it's big and exciting, so here's Luke's theme. It almost enhances the way that Luke hangs over the movie as sort of a mythic presence, you know? People are mentioning him in hushed tones, and he is this mythic figure now. They all are, apparently. And so he sort of hangs over the movie, and his theme kind of pops up in some places that you wouldn't expect just knowing the story, to just remind you about him. The Force theme did something a little similar, although it's obviously more identifiable. I mean, it's obvious to bring it up when someone talks about using the Force or being a Jedi or whatever, but it's another theme that can also be a little more generalized to the mythological side of Star Wars. Well, to a certain extent, they use it sort of the way you described that they use Luke's theme is that, you know, everything they talk about, oh, Luke left and he's off doing something and we have to find Luke Skywalker. They use the Force theme in a lot of those scenes because they're looking for him because he's the Jedi Knight and they need the Jedi Knight. It's been a long time since the Force theme was Ben Kenobi's theme. Well, um, if it was still Ben Kenobi's theme, it would not have appeared in Empire or Jedi. Well, except where Ben Kenobi did. Williams sort of tried to make it Ben's theme again in Revenge of the Sith. It was given a little more variety for him, but as with anything he tried to do with the music and the prequels, it was completely cocked up by the editing. That's a whole subject on itself. The editing of the music and the prequels was a total garbage nightmare of just splicing and screwing tracks and moving them around the movie and using tracks from Phantom Menace in the next two movies. Using mislabeled tracks from Phantom Menace in the next two movies. Yeah, it, it was just a total nightmare. That was something else that I was looking forward to in the new movie, because J.J. Abrams, as a director and producer, is much better to his composers than George Lucas is. Giacchino's scores for Abrams movies and TV shows are not screwed around with in the way that the prequel scores were. 
by the time Revenge of the Sith came out, that was just a game to, you know, l listen to the album and then see what's chopped and screwed and put in where and what actually gets into the movie and what's replaced by tracks from The Phantom Menace. And God, it was just horrible. And that, that is something that isn't present at all in this movie. The, the music is almost completely unmolested. And the album is more or less in chronological order. I mean, if a couple of tracks are swapped, it's hard for me to notice because so little of the music sticks in my mind when I'm not actively listening to it. But from what I can tell, I think the CD is basically in chronological order. So it's very easy to tell what track is in what scene. I, I think so, yeah. There, there might be a few things swapped around, and I'm not sure if Ray's theme is just the track from her introduction or if that's, you know, the concert suite like Williams likes to make and it's just, you know, placed around a little. I think The Scavenger is the track from Ray's introduction, isn't it? Right, right, yes. So yeah, I, Ray I, I foolishly try to talk about this without having the track list in front of me. Yeah, so so Ray's theme is sort of an, an more of an exploration of that theme, like the Imperial March track yeah. from Empire... Or Leia's theme from New Hope. Yeah, it's a little um, out of Williams' practice to make that concert suite and place it in the midst of the album. I think in the uh, well, he pre always, in the prequel scores, they were always like right after the main title. Well, I was going to say, he always did a track like that in the prequel scores. The Anakin's theme or the uh, Across the Stars love theme. There was always a theme suite, even on the prequel albums. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there, there are always uh, one or two of the main new themes. So, you said the themes didn't make much of an impression on you. I assume, then, that you don't really have any thoughts on Finn's theme or Kylo Ren's theme? I haven't been able to pick out either of them, for sure. Like, I'll listen to a track and I'll think, oh, I hear that, and I th that must be Finn's theme, but I haven't really been able to pick them out. And again, I can't remember any of this music when I'm not listening to it. Yeah, with Finn's theme, I'm just getting to the point where if it comes up on the CD, I may recognize it, but it's not something that I can recall independently yet. Like, there are things, just from my previous experience listening to things, there are things I'm assuming have a theme somewhere in this score, and I just haven't picked them out yet. I assume Finn has a theme, I assume Kylo Ren has a theme, I assume the Force One, whatever. I keep calling it Force One. Force One? Yes. And I want to give it a first word, but I don't know what the first word would be. Do you mean... Dark the Force 1? <laughs> I assume the Dark Force 1 has a theme. Um, I don't believe the Dark Force 1 actually has a theme. Really? No, I think they just get general, like, militaristic stuff. And then when Kylo Ren comes in, his theme pops up. Uh, there's a track in here called The Star Killer, so apparently John Sheridan has a theme. <laughs> yes. Highly irregular, Captain! <laughs> it's Lenon's least favorite track. <laughs> and also there's a uh, march for the resistance which i've put together a an sat analogy oh oh about really? this track oh let, let's let's yeah, let's uh have a little quiz the march of the resistance is to the flag parade from phantom menace as american made is to real american <laughs> That is a suitably appropriate analogy. 
I think it's got much more of the Trade Federation march than the flag parade in it, but that's... Sounds more like flag parade to me. Yeah, that's just a difference in in how we hear it. I think it's got a lot of the melody of the droid march in it, too. Like, the first several notes. That might just be because the March of the Resistance, I think, sounds... Considering it's for the Resistance, I think it sounds abnormally sinister. I don't think it sounds sinister. I think it sounds kind of heroic and upbeat. Yeah, see, I don't think it sounds heroic, really. I I think it sounds like a sinister, oppressive march. No, I don't get that at all. You know, which which seems like the wrong feel to have for the resistance. So maybe that's just some oddity in the way I'm hearing it, but I, I can't shake that impression. No, I don't, I don't, it doesn't sound oppressive or dark or anything like that to me at all, no. Following up on some of the speculation and discussion that people are going to be having until some announcement is made, after listening to this and after seeing this movie, are you looking forward to a John Williams Episode 8 score? I think my opinion is basically the same as it was. If John Williams does Episode 8 and he does it in a very similar style to what he's done for Episode 7, I will be very pleased with it. I'll listen to it and I'll enjoy it and I'll think that's good music for a Star Wars movie and it works and that's fine. If John Williams steps aside and Michael Giacchino steps in and he uses the themes that Williams has written for the original trilogy and for Force Awakens and uses those themes and scores in his style the Episode Eight movie, I'll probably be very pleased with that as well. I'm okay with keeping Giacchino on the Star Trek side of the Bad Robot family. I definitely want to keep him on the Star Trek side. I'm just saying that if he has to visit the other side occasionally to write a score using John Williams' themes, I'm not going to object. I think it would be better for Williams to do Episode 8 and Episode 9. I think it would be interesting to hear Giacchino do one of the spin-off movies. I know he's not doing Rogue One next year. That's going to be Alexandre Desplat. Who seems like a little bit of an odd choice. I was not a fan of his later Harry Potter movie scores. He wrote one theme that I really liked for Harry Potter... Was it Part 7, Part 2? Was Part 7 the one they split up? Yes. Okay. Uh, Yeah, the first track on there, Lily's theme, I really, really liked. His other music for the last two Harry Potter movies didn't make much of an impression. So it'll be interesting to see what he brings to the table for Rogue One. I think it would be interesting for Shikino to do one of the other spinoff movies. I think it's just as well that Williams is back for Star Wars and indeed seemed really uh, enthusiastic about doing it. He even, partially due to the amount of time that it was taking to score Star Wars and partially due to his health, he didn't do the Steven Spielberg movie this year, Bridge of Spies, which was the first time that Williams did not do a Spielberg movie since The Color Purple. And that had previously been the only Steven Spielberg movie Williams didn't score since Duel, uh, way back in, what was that, 74, 75? Something like that. So he skipped out on that partnership to do Star Wars, so that's an interesting display of priorities. He is back with Spielberg for his next movie, and he'll have to balance out whatever Spielberg has planned with Episode Eight. but I'm hopeful about it, really. I, I think this brought a lot more energy than the prequel scores did. Yes, definitely. Um, How much of that is due to the movie itself bringing more energy than the prequel films? 
and how much of it is due to a different approach by Williams? I think he was really re-energized by the way that everyone was approaching this movie. He did seem really enthusiastic in talking to media after his first meeting with J.J., he really clicked with him in a way that he doesn't really get the chance to do anymore because, I mean, there there are a couple of different perspectives on it. Uh, you could say he doesn't do any non-Spielberg movies anymore or hasn't for the last several years. Or you can say that people stopped asking him. That's something he said when he did The Book Thief a couple years ago, which was a non-Spielberg movie. And someone asked him, you know, if that was out of his habit or whatever, because he had only been doing Spielberg for a few years, ever since Revenge of the Sith. And he had only ever been doing Spielberg and Lucas movies since Memoirs of a Geisha, I think, which was also 2005. But that was, that started as a Spielberg project. It's messy. But someone asked him if it, how different it was doing a non-Spielberg movie again, and he said that he's entirely willing to do movies, it's just people don't ask him anymore. Or maybe part of it is that they can't afford him, <laughs> except for big movies anymore, because, part of it, yeah. because a guy like John Williams has got to demand a nice part of your uh, budget, especially your music budget. A, the budget, and B, how are you going to be a filmmaker saying, oh, I'm going to call up John Williams and see if he's interested in scoring my movie. I mean, you really think the filmmakers from, like, Looper are thinking, let's call it John Williams. The people from Looper aren't, but you'd think some, like, Oscar bait people would. Like the book thief people. I suppose. You know, at least, like, you know, send a fax to his agent. I picture John Williams' agent as the sort of guy who still uses a fax. He's probably had the same agent since 1983. He's probably had the same agent since 1972. His agent probably only has John Williams as a client anymore, and when they ask him, why are, are you really just representing John Williams? Are you basically retired, except you still work with John Williams? And he says, no, I'd represent anyone, just nobody calls me and asks for representation. <sighs> Overall, I think a pretty good thumbs up for the score. I think... I think the whole, al whole album is an engaging listen. There are a couple of pieces that I really like, especially the ending track, The Jedi Steps. Oh, we haven't gotten to that yet. Yeah, that is that is that is the one track that really jumped out of me as a really good that, track. I heard the theme from that in one of the TV spots that they had for the movie about a month ago and thought that that sounded like a pretty good theme. That sounded the most like John Williams out of any of the music in the TV spots. Now, what is that a theme for? Because it's not Ray's theme, and it's not the four theme obviously i've seen people saying it's a development of ray's theme but i don't see it the best guess i sort of poked at is it's like a force related to ray theme like it's not luke's force theme it's ray's force theme i think that would be an interesting development i definitely want to hear it again in episode eight i'd love to hear um, it expanded beyond like 90 seconds preceding the end title True. I think, at least as it exists in this score, if it's not just a way of developing Ray's theme that I haven't been able to tell because I'm a Neanderthal when it comes to music stuff, I think it might just be in that Williams style where he used to toss off great themes in one-off tracks and then never use them again, like the throne room in Star Wars or the asteroid field. The throne room in Star Wars was Ben's theme, wasn't it? There was also the throne room theme. It, it, was, it wasn't just the Force theme. Okay, I'm not remembering that. I, I don't think I've listened to that track in years. So maybe I need to re-listen. 
you know, there's 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 another another theme in there that's that's really nice and not revisited again, except for a little bit at the end of the uh, Return of the Jedi end titles, and it's in the Revenge of the Sith end titles. Although that's the concert arrangement of the throne room, which I don't prefer. But again, that's me. I think, unless it comes back in the future, which I really hope it does, because I love that theme and I love the treatment that it's given there, it might just be Williams tossing it off, you know, like, hey, I'm a genius, here's this awesome thing, I'm, I'm just gonna never use it again. I hope he does, though. Okay, so, I think we've covered uh, this score pretty well and our impressions of it. It turns out this was written for a movie, too. So you want to take a second to say uh, what you thought of the movie? Well, I said earlier, it's the first time I've gone to a good Star Wars movie since 1983. Yeah, I think it's a solid entry for fourth best Star Wars movie. Uh, easily the fourth best Star Wars movie, absolutely. And, and I might go higher if I was still a little kid. Like if it was you put still, it ahead of New Hope? If I was eight years old or ten years old, I might. I don't know if I would. If I was 8 years old or 10 years old, I might be more likely to put it ahead of Empire than ahead of New Hope. I didn't have the most sophisticated taste at that point. Yeah, it's it's hard to say because so much of it trades on nostalgia, but the recognition that nostalgia works on is also something that works fantastically for little kids because... Because children thrive on pattern recognition? Yes, exactly. Children thrive on pattern recognition and so do nerd boys. Well, that's why I love robust, featured, prominent themes so much. So, so yes, I think they did a really good job with the nostalgia stuff. I think it was a savvy decision on their part to take the old characters and the mythic structure that Star Wars works best in and put the old characters into somewhat different roles in that mythic structure. Like, in this movie, at least, Han Solo was Ben Kenobi. He picked up the new hero from the desert planet that wasn't Tatooine, but was kind of Tatooine, and introduced her to the larger world, and then... We gave a spoiler warning, and then he has to die, so that she has to enter the larger world on her own. And then Luke is gonna be Yoda in the next movie. And then Luke is Yoda, yes. If you look, they sort of did the same thing backwards with the original trilogy and the prequel trilogy. Cuz I yeah, I guess they kind of tried to do that synchronicity you, with Qui-Gon. If you were going if you were going to watch in order 1 2 3 4 5 6, then you turn on episode 4 and you say, "Well, I like how they took Ben Kenobi and sort of used him in a different role. Now he's the wise elder who finds the guy on the remote planet and takes it upon himself to train him, but then he has to die like Qui-Gon did." Yeah, I don't give a whole lot of thought to how the prequels work in the structure because they're the prequels. I generally um, ignore them myself. I mean, a large part of the prequels is character work and background for the trilogy, except the entire background for Obi-Wan and Yoda is that they failed at every single thing they ever tried to do. So, so that's kind of, that's kind of a dead end of analysis for me. I know a lot of people have done a lot of great analysis of that, but it's not something given my temperament that I can really get into as much. But yeah, I, I guess it would kind of, kind of work in that way. Of course, I, I, I suppose Leia is now Mon Mothma. I suppose. <laughs> if I had any criticism of this movie, it's that it's so much of a paint-by-numbers Star Wars movie. It is so much of it. Okay, we need this bit, we need this bit. 
We, we need a desert planet that's not Tatooine, but a desert planet. We have the ice planet Hoth, but with a forest now. You know, we have to have an X-Wing trench run. We have to have a Death Star. Yeah, the, yeah. The, uh, the 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 obligatory super weapon seemed extra tacked on. Also, this, that's always something that I describe the Lethal Weapon movies as. Like the Lethal Weapon movies always had the same bits. There's the bit where somebody does funny Miranda rights. There's the bit where Mel Gibson climbs on a moving vehicle. There's the bit where Danny Glover's daughter is in danger. Every Lethal Weapon movie had these same bits. And that's sort of what this Star Wars movie felt like. It's like, oh, there's this bit that's in the Star Wars movies. And oh, there's this bit that's in the Star Wars movies. It was just very, very sort of paint-by-number copying the structure of other films. But it was fun. It was a lot of fun to watch. It was enjoyable. It was good. You know? Oh, here's the new Empire. Here's the new Darth Vader. Here's the new Moff Tarkin. Here's the new Emperor. It's giant holographic golem. Yeah, the new Darth Vader and the new Emperor kind of fell flat for me. I mean, Kylo Ren is just... He, he's a dirtbag emo kid who's really, really bad at all the Force stuff. A guy with no Force ability that we're, we know of is able to hold his own in a lightsaber fight. And then a woman who literally found out she had Force ability about ten minutes ago is able to defeat him. Finn only holds his own for a short time before emo kid starts nicking him with the lightsaber all over the place. But Ray does kind of instantly become good at lightsaber dueling, which I guess is going to be part of, again, the structure of a Star Wars movie. There's a lightsaber duel at the end. Yeah. Um, but it worked better in the original trilogy where the lightsaber duel was with Ben Kenobi, the experienced wizard. Yeah, well... There, the, again, there is symmetry in all things. It's kind of Nietzschean, right? With it, the eternal return. It's not like Luke defeated Darth Vader in New Hope. Right. And it's not like Luke defeated Darth Vader in Empire. Luke got his ass kicked in Empire. One thing I did really appreciate was the sort of skill of the marketing people. Oh, yeah. Because the, the ads didn't give, a, give it away at all. What they showed in the ad was Finn drawing the lightsaber and lighting it up and getting ready to fight Kylo Ren. They did not give away in any piece of promotion that I saw that Rey was the Jedi. <laughs> no. No, they totally did Totally misdirected the entire audience. Good job marketing people. Yes, there was so much of that movie that they didn't give away, and, and it was awesome. Not only just not give it away, because it's really easy to say nothing, but what they did was they cleverly misdirected the audience. They didn't just keep the audience in the dark, they showed select bits to misdirect the audience. They didn't just keep it a mystery. Oh, is there a Jedi? Who is the Jedi? We don't know. They showed you, oh, Finn's the Jedi. But no, nah, it turns out not so much. That clever misdirection of the audience. I really appreciated that. Yeah, be because, because we expect the dude to be the Jedi, frankly. Yeah, they played on the audience's prejudices and expectations. Yeah. E even while more prejudiced segments of the audience were going ape shit about a black guy being a stormtrooper and a black guy possibly having a lightsaber. Ugh, let's not even go into that. Jesus. Okay, well, yeah, there are all sorts of elements talking about how this is, you know... The SJW stuff overtook Star Wars. And I don't have time to devote... To analyzing the opinions of people who find the presence of any non-white person objectionable. Love yourself. Focus on the good things. There's a better way to live, right? There's a better way to live. 
Enjoy the things you enjoy, and don't spend time listening to people who think that the presence of any character who isn't a white dude is obviously a conspiracy of some sort. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That that's that's the long and short of that. Uh, while we're talking about the lightsaber, that must be some story about uh, that Maz has about recovering that thing from Bespin, right? <laughs> I mean, they lamp they lampshade it. So someone asks her, you know, how did you get that? And she says, no, it's a long story. Because, <laughs> I mean, that's not something that anyone forgot. Luke has his robot hand. Well, the question that becomes, did, did anyone recover his second lightsaber from the Death Star? Like, after he threw it away and refused to fight, and the Emperor almost killed him, and then Darth Vader killed the Emperor, did he, like, take that thing back while he was dragging his father's body to the shuttle? I, or did he just leave it there to get blowed up? I don't know. I never looked. Did he have it, like, hooked on his belt when he was dragging Vader around? I don't, don't I ne- remember. I never looked. Although, I mean, he went and built that. He can build another. Yeah, for all you know, he has, like, a turquoise lightsaber now. Uh, he, he has a turquoise lightsaber in case anyone attacks him on his cliff. Yeah, I like that Luke spends all his time standing at the top of a mountain on the edge of a cliff, staring out over the ocean with his back to the the stairs. Just standing there day after day after day after month after month after year. Standing there waiting for somebody to finally come up behind him so he can do a dramatic turn reveal. Yeah, you think... Or was he, like, just sitting at home, chilling, reading a book, having a sandwich, and he had some sort of alarm? Oh, somebody's climbing up! I gotta go take my dramatic pose! Yeah, the alarm system was the Force Ghost of (laughs) (laughs) Qui-Gon. Yeah, like, has he just been, you know, hermiting down there, or does he actually, like, commune with the Force Ghosts? Like, has he talked out all his daddy issues with the ghost of Hayden Christensen? He has many imaginary friends. If they're doing Force Ghosts, which, I mean, they, they kind of are, um, you know, can they get Hayden Christensen back for the next movie? Oh, good word, hopefully not. Um, did, did you see that, actually? Someone asked uh, JJ about the little montage they had when Ray first touched the lightsaber. Uh-huh. About some of the sound clips in there. And apparently, they got Ewan McGregor and Frank Oz to record new lines for that little montage. Really? Yeah. Like, they they first had it recorded by the guy who plays Obi-Wan in The Clone Wars, and then Ewan McGregor came in and did it. Huh. And apparently also, they got a clip from Alec Guinness. Like, they, they took some scene where he talked about someone being afraid and pulled out the syllable Ray. Oh my goodness. So, I'd have to see that, probably on home video, to, you know, run it a few times, but... Apparently, in that sequence, is Ewan McGregor saying something like, Ray, these are your first steps, or something like that. Frank Oz, as Yoda, saying something. Alec Guinness calling her by name. And, of course, Luke's big scream from Empire. Which was the only part of that that I got just in the theater. Uh, and man, talk about your totemic objects, right? (laughs) I mean, every object in this is totemic. That's part of the nostalgia thing. All the way down to the floating ball from uh, Star Wars that, that, that Finn finds and throws over his shoulder at one point. Totemic objects? The whole ship is a totemic object. The whole ship is a totemic... Its pilot is a totemic object. Yes, I mean, the ship is a totemic <laughs> object. The, the chess machine. The, the, the every, Everything has... Nobody, Han Solo is a totemic object. Well, yeah, but I mean, that works a little different for people. Not totally different, but a little. Han Solo basically serves the same purpose in Force Awakens as he does in New Hope. 
He rescues the fugitives from the desert planet and brings them to the rebellion resistance so they can join the fight against the Empire First Order. I suppose so. I do suppose so. And and also because the trench run at the end wasn't you know didn't seem all that great to me. I think the best action scene was the uh, escape from Jakku when when they were when they hug when they steal the Falcon when initially. They, yeah, when they steal the Falcon and like Finn gets the gun stuck and so they have to maneuver around until they can shoot the guys. Yeah, that was a pretty good scene. That that was really nice. And again, that was mainly a nostalgia hit because it's the first time seeing the Falcon flying maneuvers like that at least since Jedi almost since the asteroid belt. Yeah, in Jedi, I guess there's the whole chase through the Death Star infrastructure. Yeah, but that's a little different than, like, swerving around and loop-de-looping and stuff. That's the kind of stuff that you haven't seen since the asteroid field. Yeah, true. I guess I'm thinking of the um, echo between the Death Star superstructure, not infrastructure. Uh, <laughs> the Death Star uh, superstructure and the Star Destroyer they fly into at one point. But yeah, that was that was a really thrilling one. I, I think that's something else with the pacing. I mean, one of the big hits from the Hater Brigade, as mentioned in part one of this podcast on JJ, has been like he, that he's made Star Trek movies like Star Wars movies. When the thing that's really different about Star Wars movies, as compared to Star Trek movies, is that they are pretty much rolling action sequences. Like, one action sequence leads to the next, leads to the next, leads to the next, and that's the linking structure of the movie. And there are slower scenes, and there are dialogue scenes, and there's exposition, but the main thrust of it is the rolling action sequences. When in a Star Trek movie, most times, that ratio is flipped. Again, there are different styles and there are different takes on it. I do remember when I first saw Star Trek 09, one of the things I said is the whole thing is kind of the action bit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, there were some... Which I didn't mind at the time. I still love that movie, but... That movie... If you don't like that style, that is a valid point. Many of the problems and many of the things that make me uncomfortable with darkness are present in... 11. But that movie's special to me for personal reasons, and so that kind of clouds my judgment on it a little. That movie's special to me because it brought Star Trek back from non-existence. Well, yeah, basically. I mean, one, one part of what made that movie special to me was the sense that, I mean, Star Trek is back, and, and like, it's good, and people like it. Yes. I mean, that, that sort of pleasant surprise, because I wasn't following all the news heading into making it. I mean, I generally kind of shrugged and said, I mean, yeah, I'll see it. It's a Star Trek movie. I'm a Star Trek fan. But I wasn't obsessively following it. I wasn't... I wasn't expecting anything. Because it came on the heels of Voyager and then Enterprise and Nemeshit. So I was expecting nothing. Like, oh, I hope this isn't awful. And it turned out to be awesome. Well, the big thing that really made that movie special to me was, like, the time that it came out. Because that was six months after our dad died, and... Yes, that's very true. And Star Trek is something that's really special to me because, like, our mom was a fan going back from the original days. Literally, The Man Trap, the first episode aired, she was there. And so there's that connection, and since that was so soon after our dad died, it was kind of hard to get mom out of the house for a while. And, and, and the first scene is the dad dying. And the first scene is the dad dying, and it came out on Mother's Day weekend, and, you know, we, t- we took her on Mother's Day, and we wound up seeing that movie so, so many times. Yes. Partially because it was good, and partially because Star Trek was back and people liked it, and partially just to get her out of the house. 
and to get us out of the house. And, you know, that that's just something that, you know, no other movie is going to do that in my life. And so that's a special thing for me with that movie. And that's why that movie, I have a little bit of trouble criticizing it as much as some other people do. That's, in that's in entirely idios idiosyncratic. I think it might be time to wrap up the old podcast. Well, thank you for joining me here on your podcast. <laughs> uh, for Scott, I am Glenn. <laughs> Good night, folks. Scott, what do you think the audience is for this show? Us.